Let's now take our Bibles together and turn to the book of Acts, Acts 2. Acts 2, we'll read the verses 22 through 47, and there we begin reading partway through the Apostle Peter's Pentecost sermon. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In connection with Holy Baptism this afternoon, we're going to have a look at the first Lord's Day that deals with the sacraments, which is uh, Lord's Day 25. Let's turn there in our books of praise. You can find it on page 539. There we confess the following. Since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does this faith come from? From the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use, he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise, that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant? Two, Holy Baptism and the Holy Supper. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the hardest things for a Christian to believe in is grace. The idea that God gives salvation to sinners free of charge, with no strings attached. After all, God knows us through and through. He sees us for the sinners that we are. Even the secret sins that nobody else knows about, tucked away in a, in a dark corner of our heart, buried so deeply that we sometimes even manage to forget about them ourselves, even those are visible to God. A pious front does not fool the all-knowing, all-seeing God. We cannot camouflage ourselves and appear to be better than we are, not before the eyes of the one who is everywhere present. And God is holy. Sin affects him. It fills him with anger. We read in Psalm 7, verse 11, God has anger every day. In the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism, we learn about sin and misery. And that lesson is reinforced on Sunday mornings when we listen to the Ten Commandments. For by the law comes knowledge of sin. The law tells us that we're not able to save ourselves. And it convicts us of our sinfulness. We learn that we don't deserve anything from the Lord. But then wonder of wonders, God comes with a deliverer. He comes with the free gift of salvation to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Sinners who deserve nothing receive everything in Christ, who paid for our sins by dying on the cross. God forsook his own son so that he might give salvation to people who deserve punishment. That's grace.
And so you don't understand the second part of the catechism until you realize that deliverance means grace. That's the message that comes through loudly and triumphantly in the Lord's days just before the one we're looking at this afternoon. Lord's Day 23 says this, Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never had nor committed any sin, as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. So when I put my faith in Jesus Christ crucified, then by that faith, God gives me the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. That's the doctrine of our deliverance. And that doctrine is then reinforced in Lord's Day 24, which says that we cannot contribute something extra to our justification by doing good works. We must believe that Christ is our only and our complete Savior. Here we might think of what the Belgian Confession says in Article 22. There we confess that faith embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, makes him our own, and does not seek anything else besides him. It is a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something else is needed besides him, because then the conclusion would be that Christ is only half a savior. And therefore, we rightly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works of the law. So I'm delivered by Christ alone, out of grace alone, without any contribution on my part. That's the doctrine of deliverance. You might think then that we would here come to the end of the section of deliverance. That's enough. After Lord's Day 24, you'd think the second part of the catechism would be finished and we could happily go on to the third part and learn about our thankfulness. But no, the third part of the catechism doesn't start until Lord's Day 32. We've got another seven Lord's Days. Now that's kind of interesting because when you do get to Lord's Day 32 and you compare 32 with 24, 32 actually flows on quite well from Lord's Day 24. You could almost skip all the stuff in between. Because Lord's Day 32 starts by asking, since we've been delivered from our misery by grace alone, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Exactly the issue that Lord's Day 24 raised first. So why doesn't Lord's Day 32 come right after Lord's Day 24? Why do we first get seven Lord's Days about the sacraments, seven long Lord's Days at that? Who needs them? Well, we do, brothers and sisters. I said at the beginning that one of the hardest things for a Christian to believe in is grace. The idea that God would give salvation to Christians free of charge, with no strings attached, 
That's the message of the gospel that we hear every Sunday. The gospel that's summarized in the Apostles' Creed, which is explained from Lord's Day 7 through to 22. It's all about God's undeserved grace towards sinners. And yet that message, which is preached all the time, is so hard to keep in mind. Our weak human tendency is to think that there's got to be more to it than that. Grace is surely not enough. And Satan then can exploit our weakness by assailing us with doubts and fears, trying to convince us that our salvation is not yet secure. Our sins still hang in the balance. The outcome is not yet sure. We can still fall from grace. And God knows this weakness of ours. And that's why he gives us something else to strengthen our faith. He gives us sacraments to underline and confirm the message of grace. Now, as we'll see, the meaning of the sacraments is exactly the same as the message of the gospel. Those seven extra Lord's Days about the sacraments are all about God's grace to sinners, and they're there because we need them so much. This afternoon, I'm going to summarize the gospel of Lord's Day 25 as follows. Christ gives us sacraments to strengthen our faith in him. And we will see that these sacraments have the same fount as the gospel, the same function as the gospel, and the same focus as the gospel. Christ gives us sacraments to strengthen our faith in him. These sacraments have the same fount, the same function, and the same focus as the gospel. As I mentioned, the previous Lord's Days teach that we're counted right with God by faith only. So I suppose there is one thing that we do need to do in order to be saved. We need to believe. How do we get this faith? Where does it come from? Asks the Catechism. And we can sometimes get the impression that faith has to come from us. And the Bible can also give that impression in a way. In Acts 16, when there was an earthquake in the city of Philippi and the prison doors blew open and the prisoners' chains fell off, the apostle Paul stopped the jailer from killing himself and the jailer came running and asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say nothing. No, Paul replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe, he said, it's a command. It's something the jailer had to do. The Lord Jesus, too, often commanded people to believe. Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, said Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Or John 12, verse 36. Believe in the light, said the Lord Jesus, so that you may become children of light. John 14, verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
passages like this might give the impression that faith has to come from us. It's something we have to do. But the Catechism explains this like this. It says that faith comes from the Holy Spirit. That is, it comes from God. And the Catechism refers to Philippians 1 verse 29 where the Apostle Paul says, it has been granted to you to believe in him. And so too in 1 Corinthians 2, we read that the natural man cannot believe in the things of God. Only the Spirit knows the things of God, and so only he can teach us. The Catechism says that the Holy Spirit does not merely give us faith, but he works it in our hearts. This is explained in more detail in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3-4, article 14 of the Canons of Dort. There it says this, faith is a gift of God, not because it is merely offered by God to the free will of man, but because it is actually conferred on man, instilled and infused into him. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God confers only the power to believe and then waits from man's free will the consent to believe or the act of believing. It is, however, a gift in the sense that he who works both to will and to work and indeed all things in all brings about in man both the will to believe and the act of believing. So when the Bible tells us that we have to believe, it does not mean that we have to somehow produce faith out of ourselves. Rather, it means that we have to use the gift of faith which the Holy Spirit works in us. You see, the effect of the fall into sin upon us is so great that we cannot even come to faith in our own strength. If we had to produce faith out of ourselves, then we still would not be able to be saved, even after all that Christ has done for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And God knows that. God knows our weakness, and therefore he gives the Spirit of Christ to finish the work of Christ to prepare our hearts to receive him and his benefits by giving us faith and working it in us to believe in the gospel. We should never underestimate what the Holy Spirit does. He goes to the very root of sin, which is in our heart. Because we are sinful to the core, the Holy Spirit enters into the very core of our being and there begins to transform us. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus compared what the Spirit does in us to being born again, starting over with a new life that was not there before. The Canons of Dort calls the Spirit's work a, a supernatural, most powerful, and at the same time most delightful, marvelous, mysterious, inexpressible work. It's just as powerful as creating something out of nothing, which is what the Father can do. It's just as powerful as raising the dead, 
which is what the Son can do. The Spirit creates new life which was not there before, and so he shows that he is God, equal in power to the Father and the Son. Almighty God is at work in our hearts. Think about that. And here, brothers and sisters, we see the extent of God's grace. Not only does God give his Son to die for our sins, but he also gives the Holy Spirit to work faith in our hearts so that we might believe in the Son. Our God is the fount of life and grace. Article 1 of the Belgian Confession calls him the overflowing fountain of all good. The Catechism then tells us a little bit more about how the Holy Spirit does his work. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit is not like surgery that's performed on us while we're under general anesthetic. No, we are aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing. We can't see the Spirit because he's invisible, but we can hear and see his tools at work. And answer 65 then mentions the two tools that the Spirit uses. The first tool is the preaching of the gospel. That's a tool that we hear. The Spirit lets us hear the preaching, and he uses it to persuade us that the gospel is true. As we read in Romans 10, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The jailer in Acts 16 came to faith after he heard the explanation of the gospel by Paul and Silas. And in Acts 2, which we read together, the Jews came to faith and repentance when they heard the Pentecost sermon of Peter. The second tool which the Holy Spirit uses is the sacraments. He lets us see the water. He lets us see the bread and the wine. He also lets us feel the water on our foreheads and to take the cup and the bread in our hands and to taste the bread and the wine in our mouths, each of us individually. And so he persuades us that the grace of God is really meant for us personally. That's how the Spirit works. He engages our senses, hearing, sight, taste, and touch. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit involves us in his work. He wants us to experience for ourselves that the gospel is true. We have to hear. We have to see. We need to taste and touch. We need to be there when the gospel is preached and when the sacraments are administered and not just physically present, but alert and attentive, switched on. There's also a word of warning here. If we distance ourselves from the church and become irregular in our church attendance, or only go through the motions of worshiping while our minds are elsewhere, then we in fact resist the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't let him work faith in our heart, because we stay out of reach of his tools. 
then we no longer experience the grace of God with our eyes and ears and hands and mouth the way we should. It's not as real for us anymore. It doesn't affect us anymore. And we can put our faith at risk. The comfort of belonging to Christ does not mean so much to us anymore. And that's the reason why the Catechism also urges us in Lord's Day 38, the Lord's Day about the fourth commandment, that especially on the day of rest, I diligently attend the church of God to hear God's word, to use the sacraments. Because that's how I let the Lord work in me through his Holy Spirit. And I appreciate again what grace is. I receive comfort and assurance for my daily life. I begin to understand again what it means to find rest in the Lord, who is the fount of life and grace. Now that's as much as the Catechism says about the first tool of the Spirit, the first means of grace, as it's sometimes called. After all, the Catechism has said enough about the Gospel. All those Lord's Days from Lord's Day 7 through to 22 were about the Gospel, as they're summarized in the Apostles' Creed. So now the rest of Lord's Day 25 focuses on the second means of grace, the second tool, namely the use of the sacraments. And with that, we come to our second point as well. The sacraments have the same function as the gospel. Now, perhaps we need to clarify, first of all here, that the sacraments don't have exactly the same function as the gospel. They are a little bit different. Notice what it says in answer 65. The Holy Spirit works faith by the preaching of the gospel but he strengthens faith by the use of the sacraments. In other words, the Spirit uses the preaching to start faith. That's something that the sacraments cannot do. For example, an unbeliever is not going to become a believer by coming to the Lord's Supper table and partaking of bread and wine. It, it just doesn't work that way. Just as a craftsman uses different tools for different stages of a building project, so too the Holy Spirit. He uses the Lord's Supper to strengthen those who are already believers. The Lord's Supper is a finishing tool, you might say. And maybe an illustration from the Bible will, will help here. Remember how the Lord Jesus raised the little daughter of Jairus from the dead. He first raised her with the word. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And then, once she was alive again, he told her parents to give her something to eat. It would have been kind of pointless to put food in her mouth first while she was still dead. But once she was restored to life, she needed to be fed to strengthen her and to keep her alive. So too, now that the Spirit has worked new life in us by the preaching of the Word, He also then gives us the sacraments to strengthen that new life. The sacraments cannot start faith, but they can strengthen it once it's there. But the Gospel can do both. It's a more versatile tool than the sacraments. It can start faith and also nourish and strengthen it. 
And in that sense, the sacraments and the gospel have the same function. Both of them strengthen our faith. After we have come to faith, we need both the regular preaching and the regular use of the sacraments to nourish and strengthen our faith in the gospel of grace. And then answer 66 especially tells us what the function of the sacraments is. It says there that the sacraments were instituted by God so that by their use he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. You see, the sacraments are meant to tell us the same message as the gospel, namely that Christ has died on the cross for us so that we might have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The sacraments tell this message in a different way than the preaching. The preaching tells us, tells it that tells it in a message that we can hear, but the sacraments in a message that we can see and taste and touch for ourselves. The Catechism explains this a little bit more by using the words sign and seal. Now a sign is a symbol or a token that stands for something else. The water of baptism is a sign because it, although it's ordinary water, it has a special meaning in baptism. And so too, the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper are signs or symbols that stand for something else. So they're signs. Those signs are also seals, since they do not leave us untouched, but they leave an impression on us. They affect us by helping us to trust the things that that the things that they stand for are real. As signs, they help us to understand what the promises of the gospel are. By putting those promises into symbols that we can see and touch and taste. Water because it's used for washing. Bread because it nourishes and strengthens us. Wine because it refreshes us. And so we understand better that Christ washes our sins away and that Christ gives us strength and he gives us joy. There are also seals because the Holy Spirit actually uses them to reassure us that the promises of the gospel are really true for us. Our sins are washed away. Our faith is strengthened. Our hope and joy increases. Back in Lord's Day 7 already, the Catechism told us what faith is. A, a sure knowledge whereby we accept what God has revealed to us in his word, and even more, a firm confidence that God has granted forgiveness of sins and everlasting life to me personally, out of mere grace. There in Lord's Day 7, we learn that the Holy Spirit works this faith in my heart by the gospel. But now in Lord's Day 25, we learn more. The Spirit also uses sacraments, which confirm the gospel promises. As signs, the sacraments give us a sure knowledge of what the gospel promises mean. And as seals, they give us a firm confidence that those gospel promises come true. 
And so the preaching and the sacraments have the same meaning, the same message. Christ has died on the cross for my sins to give me forgiveness and life. And that brings us to our final point. The sacraments have the same focus as the gospel. Question 67 asks, are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground for our salvation? And I'd like you to notice the word focus there. Our faith has to have a focal point. And that focal point is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember how in 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in Galatians 6, Paul similarly writes that he will boast of only one thing, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that there's nothing else in the Bible or that this is the only thing that you need to know about, but that it must be and remain the focus of our faith, the focus of the preaching, the focus of the sacraments. Christ has died for my sins, therefore God is my Father. Christ is my Lord, and the Holy Spirit is at work in my heart. Christ's death on the cross gives me my identity. I'm not my own, but I belong with body and soul to Jesus Christ. I'm righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. That gives me direction and purpose. I want to live for my Lord and Savior alone. I want him to be the focus of my life. Brothers and sisters, God comes to you with his grace your whole life through. As little children who've only just begun your life, he puts his mark upon you with the sacrament of holy baptism. When you don't even know what the gospel is yet, the Holy Spirit promises to go to work in your heart. And as soon as you're old enough, you begin to hear about the gospel, about Jesus who died for your sins. And through that gospel, the Holy Spirit calls you to faith. He explains what the gospel means, and he helps you to believe that it's really true. Pay attention to the gospel. Receive it gladly. Respond in obedient faith to the Spirit's work. Don't push the Spirit away. Look towards the day when you may publicly profess that you believe God's promises. And then join God's people at the table so that your faith may be strengthened further still. Or maybe it's happened much later in your life that you hear the gospel for the first time or that it suddenly starts to click for you. Whether it happens in your youth or much later in your life, it is the Spirit's work and that's what we all need. Saved by grace alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone. What a glorious gospel. And so my heart sings with the words of Psalm 40, 
Great is the Lord. I may be poor and needy, but the Lord will heed me. He will not turn away, but he will think of me and help me. Amen.